Our reading today comes from 1 John 5, 6 through 13. In your pew Bibles, that's 1023, page 1023. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. If you're wondering how I could possibly mix up the Eagles game day, it's because I spent every last piece of brain power this week trying to figure out what verses 6 to 8 mean, okay? <laughs> so we're going to do our best to make sense of 6, 7, and 8 this morning. But Ray, I do have a question for you. If the Eagles were playing today at 1, would you be watching Chariots of Fire or the Eagles? Gotcha. You wouldn't have the event planned for this day. See, there, there's a true Eagle fan right there, unlike me, who doesn't even know when they're playing. So Clinton came up to me and said that my Eagle card has been revoked, uh, my Eagle fan card. So uh, I have a beautiful free copy of one of my very favorite books in life right now. It's called Every Moment Holy. Uh, it's got a whole bunch of liturgies in here for any number of moments in your life, moments of joy and happiness, moments of grief and darkness, and everything in between. Um, it's an amazing book, and I'm going to give it away this morning to the first person who can name the tune that we're going to play over the speaker. So as soon as you know it, yell it out, and this is yours, all right? Do we need to connect to the Bluetooth? Can you play it back there? Oh, Dave not got it. I'm sorry. He shouted it out and you raised your hand. Like, I'll get you another copy. I've got an extra copy. Dave, this is yours. Yeah, that, that is the, uh, the opening tune to the show Matlock, all right? You guys remember Matlock? Ben Matlock? Okay, man. I spent many evenings in my growing up years watching Nick at Night with my parents or grandparents, um, watching courtroom dramas like Perry Mason or Ironside, but my family's all-time absolute favorite was Matlock. And a lot of it was because of that opening tune right there. Thank you, Dave Nutt. Uh, ben Matlock was hard to beat in the courtroom. I Googled him earlier this week or last week, and it was something like he had won 400 cases and only lost three. And the three that he lost, he eventually circled back to win. So he's like 403-0. and 0. Um, But anyway, he was brilliant at solving cases and persuading a jury and much of his success was due to his ability to secure witnesses that would validate his case. Securing witnesses that would validate his case. So it goes something like this. 
persuasive witnesses plus truthful testimony equals a convinced jury. Today's text has all the courtroom drama and players of a high-profile case. Look at all the legalese in these few verses. Look at verse 6, the word testifies. Verse 7, testify. Verse 9, testimony, testimony, testimony. Verse 10, two more instances of testimony. Verse 11, another instance of testimony. John clearly wants to pull us into a courtroom with us. He wants to pull us into a courtroom with him this morning. And so let's, let's join him. See if you can determine who the jury is, who the defendant is, who the prosecutor is, who the witnesses are, and who the defense attorney is. Maybe a quick reminder, just before we go there, a quick reminder about the situation that this letter was written into, the context, might be helpful here. At the end of our text for this morning, John provides us uh, his motive for writing this letter in the first place. You can see it there uh, in verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That's his purpose. He wants us to know that we know that we know that we have eternal life. But some of the folks in John's church had just left the church. Um, and, and the reason that they left is because they had been led astray by incorrect teaching about the identity of Jesus. And so he writes to the remaining members. You might remember this back in chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are all not of us. So history tells us, this is like context outside of the scriptures that historians uh, have logged for us. History tells us that the group who left the church was likely led by a guy named Serinthus. Um, who was promoting this idea that Jesus was born a mere man and died a mere man. More specifically, he taught that the Christ, or like the, the God part of Jesus, as it were, uh, came upon Jesus at his baptism and left Jesus just before his death. That was Serenthus's belief. So to his mind, uh, the person who was born was Jesus the man, not Jesus the Christ. And the man who died on the cross was Jesus the man and not Jesus the Christ. He split Jesus. And so this might be why we have John saying back in chapter 2, verse 22, who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. That's why he's writing that. He's writing into a very particular heresy that it was infiltrating the church at the time. And so this is what is at stake for us as we enter the courtroom with John this morning. And we'll find that Jesus is the defendant. John is the defense attorney, and he's much more capable than Matlock. You'll be glad to know. The deserters, people who left the church, are the prosecutors. The witnesses are all on Jesus' side. And the jury is y'all, is us. We are the jury this morning. So as the members of the jury, I'm going to warn you up front here. The doctrinal testimony in this text is particularly thick this morning. You probably noticed in 6, 7, and 8. Difficult truths to unravel. I had a harder time untangling this text than maybe just about any I've ever had to untangle before. Now maybe the, the idea of thick, rich doctrine makes you yawn. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it seems irrelevant to your real life circumstances right now. But be careful. Don't think that way. There's truly a whole lot at stake for us this morning. Here's 
one author who frames kind of what's at stake for us, I think. He says, it is a terrible and terrifying thing to know what you want to be and then realize you're the only one standing in your way. To want with every fiber of your soul to be someone different, to escape the you that you've made of yourself, only to fall back into the self that you hate over and over and over again. After the thrill of the independence and experiments and self-actualization, drinking your so-called potential for being to the dregs, when the exhaustion starts to set in and then eventually morphs into a kind of self-disgust, you can reach a point where you know you want a different life but are enchained to the one that you've made. None of us set out for this. None of us want this. We don't want a fraudulent faith or a fruitless life, but without the stuff of this doctrine today, this is where we will inevitably end up, with a laundry list of disappointing pseudo-saviors. So don't shrug off this doctrine this morning. It is the very thing that unshackles you from a wasted life. We get to be the jury of history's most important case this morning. More important than OJ. More important than Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, and certainly more important than any of the fake cases that Matt, Ben Matlock tried. This is no minor misdemeanor trial. We are being called to listen to a case and make a judgment about something that doesn't just affect our bodies, but our very souls. The part of us that will live on forever after our brief little time here on this planet. Let's just take a glance at that final verse there, the second to last verse in our text for today, verse 12. It says, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Your very life is on the line as the jury determining this case today. My prayer is that we'd all hear these persuasive witnesses with their truthful testimony, and that we would be a convinced jury. Anytime there's a trial, there's always a charge against the defendant, right? So what is the charge that is being brought against Jesus by these deserters this morning? That Jesus is not fully God and fully man, and that his death is not the only means to our life. That's what's being brought against Jesus. As the jury, I hope that you'll find Jesus innocent of only being a part-time Christ. Where, where the Christ spirit came upon him at his baptism and left him before his death. John's going to show us why he wasn't just temporarily the Christ, like Serinthus was claiming, but always the Christ. And this really does matter. And enfleshed God is at the very core of our faith for at least two reasons. A historical human Christ means that truth is not a matter of experience, but a matter of history, quantifiable, verifiable history. In other words, we don't get to make this up as we go. We have a fixed, objective, historical faith, not a changing experiential faith. And then second, the fusion of God plus man is central to the potency of Jesus' death. If Jesus was less than man, he could not step in as our substitute. If Jesus was less than God, he would be incapable of absorbing all of the wrath do the sins of the whole world. Only God could take that on his shoulders. None of us could absorb that much wrath. And so John offers four, witness here, four witnesses here that step up to offer testimony on behalf of Jesus. So get yourself in that courtroom space. Uh, when Jesus is accused of being less than fully God and fully man, each of these stands up and takes their seat in the stand and says, nope, not true. 
Here's the four witnesses. The witness of Jesus' baptism in blood, the witness of the Holy Spirit, the witness of the Father's testimony, and then the witness of our own testimony. If you weigh all of this testimony carefully this morning, then by the end of our time together, you should be able to make a just ruling about who Jesus really is. There's this iconic moment uh, in the 1993 film Hook, which just so happens to be one of my very favorite movies. We get Matt, all kinds of 90s stuff here today. Matlock and Hook. The Rotten Tomatoes grade on the movie Hook uh, is less than stellar, but it remains one of my favorite movies. Um, through the first half of the film, maybe remember an aging, forgetful Peter Pan ends up back in Neverland and sets out to rediscover himself. But in his absence, in all the years of his absence, uh, Rufio has come to lead the Lost Boys. Finally, though, Peter returns to form in Neverland. He's crowing, he's fighting, he's flying, he's back, or so it seems. And so the Lost Boys have this decision to make. They come to a decision point. Is this old, out-of-shape man really the pan? Is he who he says he is? If so, they should side with him and fight with him against Captain Hook and his growing army. Well, Rufio is not happy about this. Their allegiances are shifting from Rufio over to Peter Pan. And so he literally drags his sword in the sand and draws a line in the sand and asks them to choose. You step on one side or the other. Are you with me, Rufio? I'm going to go with this aging, overweight Peter Pan. They all waffle for a little while, go back and forth. Eventually, they all end up on Peter's side of the line, and even Rufio himself crosses the line. In our text for today, John draws a line in the sand. Will we believe the testimony about Jesus, that he is who he says he is? And as the jury, this text is going to force us to one side of this case or the other. The first witness John calls up to the stand on behalf of Jesus are, believe it or not, two unique forms of liquid, water and blood. And so, trust the witness of Jesus' baptism and blood. I grant that these verses are a hard thing to get our minds wrapped around. Look at verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by the water and the blood. So Martin Lloyd-Jones, um, famous pastor who died a number of years ago, he said this. He concluded the same thing I did this week. He said, there can be no question at all but that these verses, verses 6 to 8, are not only the most difficult verses in this epistle, but I think that they are the three most difficult verses in the entire Bible, all right? That was his opinion. I'm not far off from that opinion. I get it. Water and blood do seem like surprising symbols to throw onto a stand in a courtroom. I'm with you there. I'm guessing that this language would have been more familiar to the original audience that John is writing to, uh, more familiar to them than to us. So it probably wouldn't have been as much of a head-scratcher for them as it probably is for us this morning. But I do think we can take a reasonable stab at what John is getting at here, especially with what we know about the heresies that were, that were infiltrating the church at the time. Here's what I think is happening. Water is a reference to Jesus' baptism, and then blood is a reference to Jesus' crucifixion. These two events bracket the beginning and the end of the mission and ministry of Jesus. Remember that Serenthus guy again and those who followed him. They believe that at Jesus' baptism, the divine Christ came upon Jesus, the man, 
And then he carried out his ministry uh, in the power of the divine Christ up until the time of his crucifixion and then the divine Christ left and Jesus the man died. John's refuting this idea here by saying, whoa, 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 whoa. It wasn't just his baptism that makes Jesus the saving Christ. It was his death too. The Jesus who was baptized and the Jesus who died were the same guy and the same God. Ultimately, he's saying, only an infinite and sinless person could take on the infinite punishment that our sins deserved. If Jesus is not God, he cannot save. If Jesus was just a good dude with a sharp ethic and a golden tongue, that'd be nice, but he couldn't do anything for us ultimately. And I think a majority of our world kind of takes this stance. Jesus was a good dude and taught some good stuff. But because Jesus is God, we have legitimate hope that our sins are paid for and that our lives can be redeemed. So let's talk for a moment about water, specifically what it refers to here, I believe, being baptism. And then we'll talk about the blood. But think about, think about what happened back at Jesus' baptism. I'll, I'll read it here for you from Matthew 3. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So the Father here is combining parts of Psalm 2, verse 7, written thousands of years before Jesus, and Isaiah 42, verse 1, written about 700 years before Jesus. Now, this, this may mean nothing to you, but it meant a lot to those who were listening there, uh, who heard that proclamation from God the Father, and to the Jews who knew their Bible. It would have meant a lot to them. Psalm 2-7 is a messianic psalm that prophesies the coming of a Messiah. And then Psalm 42-1 predicts a suffering servant king to come and rescue his people and rule them in goodness and justice. So God is strolling into the, the courtroom with the witness of Jesus' baptism, and he's confirming that Jesus is, in fact, the long-prophesied Messiah, the redeeming Son. So at Jesus' baptism, the Father testified to the validity of Jesus' identity as Son, as the Son of God, or as God. We should trust the witness of Jesus' baptism because it comes with the Father's approval, and this approval was witnessed by others, like John the Baptist, for instance. But in verse 6, John takes pains to say, Jesus came not by water only, but by the water and the blood. Why does, Jesus take, why does John take pains to specify this? Well, I think it's because of the heresy of the day, again. That the guy who died on the cross, this is the heresy, that the guy who died on the cross was just a dude and not God. But to deny that Jesus, fully God and fully man, died on the cross is to deny that the truths about Jesus in the scriptures are true, and that the souls, our souls are in peril without a God-man savior. At Jesus' baptism, the Father is testifying to the inauguration of the Son's work. He's starting his redemptive saving work today. That's what's happening at the baptism. That's what John is referring to with the water there. But he also mentions blood, right? And he, at Jesus' crucifixion, the Father testified to the necessity of Jesus' redemption as savior identity as son at the baptism and then in his crucifixion it's his redemption redeeming work as savior in other words it's not just jesus's unique baptism that sets him apart that's what the deserters were claiming but it's also the blood shed at his crucifixion so think of all the miraculous 
witnesses that were provided by the Father at the crucifixion. Let me just list a couple here for us. Matthew, 20, uh, Matthew 27, there was a unique darkness across the land from noon to three o'clock. Matthew 27, again, the, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Saints were raised from the dead and seen by many. These are some persuasive testimonials to convince us that Jesus truly was the Son of God. The Father is sort of like supporting uh, the identity of his Son by doing these miraculous things. But that's not all. As Jesus hung on that cross, he was perfectly fulfilling prophetic texts like Isaiah 53, where it says, For he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Then it goes on to say, Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. So smitten by God. This is why Jesus, while he was hanging on that cross a thousand years later, said this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Back to Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Isn't this exactly what happened with Jesus on the cross? He was pierced with nails. He was pierced with thorns. And he was pierced with a spear. Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and afflicted. He did not open his mouth. He was led like a sheep, silent before its shearers. Do you remember when Jesus was on trial? He didn't speak a word. Matthew 27 again. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Back to Isaiah. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. He was cut off out of the land of the living, and they made his grave with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. What does that mean? A rich man in his death. Jesus was buried in the tomb of a rich man. Joseph of Arimathea, a very rich man. So what's the point? I'm just very briefly stacking testimonial on testimonial on testimonial surrounding the prophecies of the Old Testament that were fulfilled at the death of Jesus. It was so persuasive that a a hardened Roman centurion at the foot of the cross said, this man really was God's son. You want to know about Jesus? Accept the testimony of the Father at Jesus' baptism and Jesus' death. John Stott summarizes this well. He says, Jesus of Nazareth was not God's special agent who was adopted at his baptism, but abandoned at the cross. He was and is the eternal Son of God who entered this world in time and space and died as our substitute. His death was not an accident. It was not an act of martyrdom. It was a divine saving substitution for sinners with redeeming value and worth. The error John is like fending off here is no small error. We shouldn't underestimate how much damage their small tweak of the Jesus narrative can do, how much damage it could do. Uh, I told our pastoral ministry track guys this story a a few months ago, but I'm going to tell all of us this morning. Uh, In 1979, a large passenger jet with 257 people on board left New Zealand for Antarctica. Unknown to the pilots, though, someone had modified the flight coordinates uh, just by, by two degrees, so barely anything at all. But this error placed the aircraft 28 miles to the east of where the pilots assumed that they were. As they approached Antarctica, the pilots descended to a lower altitude to give the passengers a better view of the landscape there. 
And all both of the pilots were experienced. Neither had made this particular flight before, and they had no way of knowing that the incorrect coordinates had placed them directly in the path of Mount Erebus, which was an active volcano. And as, as the pilots flew onward and lower and lower, the white of the snow and ice covering the volcano blended in with the white of the clouds above, and they got confused. And by the time the instrument sounded the warning that the ground was rising fast toward them, it was too late, and the airplane crashed into the side of the volcano, killed everyone on board. A terrible tragedy, obviously, brought on a very, 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 very small error, only a matter of a few degrees. Every move that plane made, though, after that mistake was only deepening the hole that it was in, putting them further off course, whether intentionally or not. So look, if we get Jesus wrong, even by just a little bit, if you miss it, you're going to be off course. Every move you make is going to be deepening the hole that you're in. Nothing you do will be right because your starting point was wrong. This is why I say let us not yawn when thick doctrinal sections come up in the scriptures. Instead, lean forward on the edge of your seats. Study the scriptures. Yearn for them. Explore the real Jesus and find life in his name. And though this particular area, uh, error that was existing in John's time may not be prevalent today. There may not be anyone preaching that particular heresy. There are plenty of others that we need to guard ourselves from, even in 2023. Take Jehovah's Witnesses, for example. They claim to hold to the truth that God revealed. It can be confusing for people like us who don't know their faith very well. But they, like Serinthus, believe a false gospel, and they are leading people astray. We, with John would call them liars because they deny the very thing to which God gives witness to throughout the scriptures. Look at verse 10. Whoever does not believe God has made God a liar because he has not believed God. Here's how one theologian summarize, summarizes their errant theology. It says, the Jehovah's Witness religious movement says that Jesus may be called a God, small g, but not the God, capital G, they say he is mighty, but not the Almighty. They say he was created by Jehovah. He is not a member of the Trinity. There is no Trinity. They say that the Son, during his pre-human state, was really an angel by the name of Michael. They further say that the Son did not even possess immortality. He was created and created to die. They teach that when Christ was born of Mary, he ceased being a spirit person altogether and became nothing more than a human being. The Jesus that walked on earth had only one nature, and that was the nature of a man. The Jehovah's Witnesses also teach that Jesus became or took on the role of Messiah when he was baptized, similar to Serenthus's view. It was there that God made this human being his spiritual son. And so he was first a created angel, then a created man, and then finally the spiritual son. The Jehovah's Witnesses deny that Jesus physically, literally rose from the dead. His body never came back to life. In fact, once he had sacrificed his body, they say, he could never get it back. Judge Rutherford who invented the religion of Jehovah's Witnesses, said that the body of Jesus was disposed of and God, who knows where it is, will bring it back and put it on exhibit in some millennial museum. Brothers and sisters, they may call themselves the witnesses of Jehovah, but they are not to be trusted in this courtroom. They are believing lies and telling lies and making God out to be a liar. They do not echo God's witness concerning his son. 
Any teaching that tampers with the identity of Jesus Christ, the death of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, or the resurrection of Jesus must be flatly rejected. What we believe about Jesus is critical because it is, the only, it is only in the real Jesus that we find life. Verse 12 of chapter 5 there. Okay, that's witness number one. I promise you we're going to pick up the pace here. The other witnesses will not be as long-winded as the blood and the water. Second this morning, trust the witness of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 6. And the Spirit is one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And those three agree. Clearly, we need the testimony of the Spirit to convince us of Jesus' identity. And how does he do this? Through his word. Your experience of God's Spirit will agree with God's truth about his Son, or it is not God's Spirit. The word tests your experience of the Holy Spirit. The word is the test, not your experience. The Spirit agrees with the water and the blood. In other words, the Spirit testifies to Jesus' true identity. And so the Spirit is your only hope of like finding a truth perspective in the fog of war that we've been thrown into as Christians. You need a truth perspective, and your only reliable source for that is by the Spirit through the words that he inspired so long ago. The Spirit is God's gift to you so that you can know exactly what is good and right in this world. Pray specifically to the Spirit and ask the Spirit specifically for help. The Spirit is not an add-on. The Spirit is not take it or leave it. The Spirit isn't the third wheel of the Trinity. The Spirit is not a spooky thing that the church keeps on a shelf in its doctrinal statement. No, the Spirit is the lifeblood of our faith because it convinces us of the truth about Jesus, our only hope in life and death. It is the Spirit who supplies confidence in Jesus when our hearts are wilting. The Holy Spirit will never expand upon the apostolic teaching about Jesus Christ. This is why we reject cults like Jehovah's Witnesses or, or Mormons. Not because we boast like a superior revelation from the Spirit, but because their claims don't square with what's in this book. Like one author has said succinctly, John Piper, he says, The work of the Holy Spirit does not take us beyond the teaching of the apostles. It helps us to accept and abide in that teaching. It helps us grow in our understanding of that teaching. It strengthens our power to practice that teaching. It increases our confidence in the truth of that teaching. But it does not change the teaching. It does not expand on the teaching. The anointing of the Holy Spirit keeps you from believing the lie that Jesus is not God's anointed one. It keeps you from believing the lie that he doesn't have rights over every last inch of you, heart, mind, body, and soul, from your wallet to your sexuality to your marriage to your work ethic to your drinking habits and attitudes. So pour the witness of the Holy Spirit like fuel into your confidence tank this morning so that when our hearts or our flesh begin to feel squeamish about this book or about the truth about God's Son, we can talk right back to our hearts with confidence and say, no, this is the truth concerning the Son of God. So John, as Jesus' defense attorney, stands again, and he introduces the next witness to come up to the stand. And it is none other than God himself, the Father. Uh, verse 9, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. John's like, listen, you're willing to learn stuff from human beings, other human beings, from, from men, women. Great. But listen to God over and above them. 
God's witness about Jesus is singular and unique. Neutrality is not an option, like Rufio's line in the sand. It's one side or the other. We either step onto Jesus' side or we let the full wrath of God land on our own shoulders. To reject Jesus is to reject God himself. Here's how Charles Spurgeon said it. God is to be believed if all men contradict him. Let God be true and every man a liar. One word of God ought to sweep away 10,000 words of men, whether they be philosophers of today or sages of antiquity. God's word is against them all, for he knows infallibly of his own son. He knows as none else can. Of our condition before him, he knows. Of the way to pardon us, he knows. There is nothing in God that could lead him to err or make a mistake. And it were blasphemy to suppose that he would mislead us it were an insult to him, such as we may not venture to perpetrate for a moment to suppose that he would willfully mislead his poor creatures by a proclamation of mercy which meant nothing, or by presenting them to a Christ who could not, would could not, wouldn't could not, who could not redeem them. The gospel with God for its witness cannot be false. Whatever may be the witness against it, the witness of God is greater. We must believe the witness of God. Keep in mind what was happening in John's church at this time. Human testimony was struggling for acceptance over God's testimony. And John says everything must be measured against the Father's testimony concerning his Son. The test of whether or not we accept God's testimony rests in this question. Do we accept and embrace the truth in the Scriptures about Jesus? Fourth witness, fourth and final. Trust the witness of our own testimony. Verse 10, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Paul echoes the same kind of idea in Romans 8. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. You ever had an experience, either like wondering to yourself or maybe someone asking you if you're a Christian, and you say, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christian. And then they might say, well, how do you know that you're a Christian? Of course, there are technical answers to that and theological responses to a question like that, but there's also an experiential one. It's like this. I just know. I know. And where does that sense, that settled sense come from, that you are a believer? It's a gift from the Spirit of God himself. Whoever believes in the Son of God has a testimony in himself. So John doesn't point us back to an experience he doesn't tell us to write the date of our conversion in the front of our Bibles so that when we're doubting, we can just look at that date and have our doubts assuaged. He doesn't instruct us to look back to an experience. Nope. He says, who are you trusting today? Who do you believe today? Where is your hope today? That's why the verb tense in verse 10 is so important for us. It's a present tense. He says, whoever believes, or to say it another way, whoever is believing. So the question is never, did you believe? It is always, are you believing? Are you believing? So members of the jury, what is your verdict? Do you believe the testimony about the real, historical, full-time Christ, the God-man? Are you trusting the testimony of Jesus' identity as full-time God and Savior? Are you trusting the Spirit and the Father? If so, breathe easy. Breathe easy. You are in the family. That's why this book was written, so that you may know that you are the children of God. But don't relax. Keep contending. 
As we close, think about the subtext of what John is doing here in this letter. What he's doing for his church. He is, he's contending for the faith. He's agonizing on their behalf to make sure they know and believe the truth. He's working hard to persuade them. He refused to be a spectator as the truth about Jesus was being threatened. He was no mere spectator. So as our society wanders further from the real historical Jesus, we're going to have to do the same, church. We're going to have to contend, not spectate. You've probably heard of the Battle of Bull Run. It was like the inaugural battle of the Civil War. It was in 1861. But there's this like tasteless, I think, side story that maybe you're not aware of. And it provides us a sobering warning as Christians, I think. At the Battle of Bull Run, many made a seven-hour carriage ride from Washington to Centerville, which was the location of the Battle of Bull Run. But these people did not come to fight. They came to watch as they picnicked with friends and family. Here's a picture of one of those picnicking families. What you can't see is just, you know, beyond where they're looking, there's a hill and down into a valley is where the Battle of Bull Run was taking as they were sitting here eating, <clears throat> eating and drinking. Real people were dying while these folks were spectating. Can you imagine that? It's a strange thing to contemplate. If that is hard to conceive of, don't fall prey in the same way with your walk, in your walk with Jesus. It's going to, be, have, to, it's going to have to be something that you contend for. There is a battle raging for our hearts, for the hearts of our kids, for the hearts of our fellow church members in here. Are you a spectator? Are you a soldier? Can I call us, call on us afresh this morning to get back to this book and the life-giving son on the regular? We have it so easy in America, don't we? Even as Christians, life is still pretty easy. But it's not time for a picnic. It's time to contend for our faith, to believe and keep believing, to trust and keep trusting. The author of Hebrews has a helpful word here for how to do this. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Some of those people in John's church had failed to take this warning seriously. I hope you won't. There is a real danger for each of us to fall into the rut of spectating rather than participating in our faith. The author of Hebrews continues, and he gives us a tool to avoid doing this, to avoid spectating instead of participating, instead, and instead to participate. He says, to avoid that, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And listen to this urgency. He continues, as it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, don't wait. Don't think you have more time, because you might not have more time. Like we're fond of saying around here, if we want to go far, we have to go together. With urgency, we must go together and exhort one another every day to believe and keep believing. This is why church membership is such a big deal to us. It's so vital. It's like boots on the ground practical. Let me urge you, if you look around and you see empty spots that used to be filled by some who have kind of wandered off, if you see empty spots and you wonder where they are, that is an emergency, church. It's an emergency. Eternal souls are on the line. Eternal life is found only in Jesus' name. And not gathering with Jesus' people threatens that very life.
I'm not talking about people who have transitioned to other churches. We know Trinity is not for everyone, and we have all kinds of warts and faults and failures. But I'm talking about people who have ghosted Jesus himself, who are being deceived right now that Jesus isn't really Lord of their life, all their life. Our hearts should break for them, and we should not spectate, but participate. Throughout a lifeline with a text or a phone call, get over the awkward, okay? It's going to be awkward for a second. It's okay. One day when you're drifting, you'll want someone to do the same for you because this is not a game. Life is found in his name and only in his name. Flip through your membership directory and plan a strategy. We don't print those as like starters for your fire pit. Feel free to use them for your fire pit uh, once we publish a new version every quarter or however often it happens. But they are functional documents to help us make it to the end still believing. Don't spectate, members of the jury. Now that you've heard the case, come to Jesus and find life in his name. And help the rest of us do that too. Will is going to come and pray for us now. I want to ask all of you to come before the, the throne of the living God with me this morning. I thank you, Father. I thank you, Lord Jesus Christ. I thank you, Holy Spirit, for having a plan of redemption before the foundations of the world, for bringing in your creation back to yourself. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for giving us your word to lead and direct us, to show us Jesus more clearly. Thank you, Lord, for the witnesses that we heard this morning of the truth that Jesus is the Christ. Would you help us today to believe that? Would we believe today and not worry about tomorrow or yesterday, but let us today believe in the risen Lord who has saved us from our sins. And then help us, I pray, Lord, to internalize this message of the witnesses on our behalf. Thank you for the blood and the water, for the testimonies that have been given here this morning. We pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.